Bretto, the Brisbane Wellness Base Camp is done, but that doesn't mean it's all over because we're coming to Adelaide. Hey, Adelaide. We love Adelaide. The first Wellness Couch event in Adelaide and a very special announcement is that your mate, the great Damien Christoph, and my mate, 100 Not Out mate, is coming to join us. Oh, it's going to be a ripper. We twisted his arm. We forced him to come along. And he's great, Damo. He's always funny. Don't tell him I said that. But he's always a wealth of information as well. And people love him. He's just got a great way of getting the nutrition message across in a way that allows people to make real sustainable changes. You know, it wasn't that uh, you had to twist his arm. He had the FOMOs and not coming to Brisbane. So he's jumping (laughs) on the plane, coming over to Adelaide. It's Saturday, April 7. Two for one tickets are available with the code... I love Damo. That's 197 bucks for two tickets, less than 100 bucks per person. Saturday, April 7th in Adelaide. Damien Christoph, Kim Morrison, JP and Andy from Smashed Avocado, Brett Hill, myself. Saturday, April 7th, the Wellness Base Camp. Get your two for one tickets with the code I love Damo. Bretto, see you there. See you there. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 162 of The Real Food Reel, we are doing things differently. Our nutritionist, Ali McLean, is on the microphone, and together we explore type 1 diabetes and the benefits of a lower carbohydrate, higher fat food template. You will learn the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, the role of nutrition, and how the key to managing type 1 starts with blood sugar control how to move beyond real food to treat this autoimmune condition and why gut health is an essential part of the effective management of type 1 diabetes. Let's dive in. So Steph, a big topic today, what I want to discuss with you for the sake of our listeners is type 1 diabetes. Uh, It's something that we haven't discussed a lot on the podcast before, but the reason I want to go into this conversation is because I think as nutritionists, and I'm sure you would agree, we're sort of brought into the picture when people have type 2 diabetes or when people are fearful that perhaps they're at risk of type 2 diabetes, but there's this notion that type 1 diabetics really can't do a lot to help their situation through through diet or through a lower carbohydrate, higher fat diet. And um, in today's conversation, I really want to break that down because I think that we can really help some people that suffer from type 1 diabetes to understand where diet can actually start to play a role uh, with the management of their condition. Obviously, there's there's two diseases at hand here, type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And uh, we need to be really clear about the fact that they are separate diseases. But 
from a dietary standpoint, we can take some of our learnings around type 2 diabetes and apply that to those people with type 1 diabetes. So I think to really set the scene, we can start with actually what is type 1 diabetes for the sake of our listeners. What is it? Yeah, I love this topic. I'm so excited to explore this today. But great question to get the ball rolling. We know that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition and the immune system is actually activated to destroy the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. So research is not completely clear on the cause of type 1 diabetes, but there's definitely a strong genetic element But that autoimmune nature of type 1 means that when the cells in the pancreas are destroyed, the pancreas can no longer produce the insulin that is required. So that's why the first line of treatment is pharmaceutical intervention. And type 1 diabetics will either be injecting insulin or on an insulin pump. Now, it differs significantly from type 2. We know that type 2 is largely a lifestyle disease and that space is quite loud in the LCHF world, which is amazing because you can actually put that disease into remission with the dietary changes and obviously the lifestyle strategies that go with that. But obviously type 1 is, is slightly different. It's um, unfortunately, you know, lifelong. But as we'll explore today, there's so much in your control. Definitely. And I love that you firstly highlighted that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition because we know that when it comes to autoimmune conditions, there's lots that we can do from a dietary standpoint. But um, I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, a lot of people that I meet with type 1 diabetes initially put themselves into this this box of I have a disease, it can't be reversed, I will never be able to reduce my dependency on insulin. And through this conversation that we're happening, having today, I really hope that we, we break that down for people. They realise that uh, it is part of this cluster of autoimmune conditions which can certainly be not necessarily reversed but assisted through, through diet and lifestyle. Absolutely. And I think that's if there's one takeaway from today, hopefully there'll be more than one. But if there is one, it is that the foundations of an autoimmune condition start with GERF, which is obviously something that we explore on the podcast all the time. But just in case the our favorite acronym is new to you, GERF stands for Just Eat Real Food. And you know, this is a really important conversation because type 1 diabetes or any version, but in today's topic, Mm. type 1, if poorly managed, will only get worse. And that can absolutely feel like a life sentence. We also know that unfortunately, the medical model that we're in in the developed world is broken so there's a big gap in the education so it's it's not the person's fault it's the system they're in where there's this huge influence of big pharma that the conversations around what we can do 
are not prioritised. They're not even being had, which breaks my heart. Definitely. And one of the things that I wanted to get onto today is what's the first step for somebody that has been reliant on insulin for a very long time or for parents that are managing children with the condition? What's the first step? And I think that first step is to get the right team around you and to not necessarily rely on just the one specialist but to look to a team of professionals that can help to provide guidance and advice on on the management of the condition. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think that's a really important point because, you know, we know that type 1 largely affects children. So the reality is it's the parents that are, ma- that are managing this condition, especially obviously in those formative years. Um, that puts a lot of pressure on the families, but we also know, again, it's a lifelong condition. So a sort of, I guess, a seed I want to plant is that if your diabetes is being managed by someone who can only offer you pharmaceutical advice, is it time to develop a team that has more of a holistic view? And I think the answer is yes. I'll leave that with the individual, of course, but it's not about necessarily you know, divorcing your current practitioner or your diabetes educator, but it's about developing a team that can provide you with the education and the support that you need, especially when you're learning a whole new way. As you said earlier, people um, are only really looking down that pharmaceutical road. So we want to open up their routes to realise there is a number of other key strategies that are absolutely king to making this lifelong disease so much more livable with. For sure. One of the things that I want you to get onto when you can is just around some of the risks associated with being so reliant on insulin. But before we get there, I just want to go back to this point that you made about how much we love jerf or just eating real food. That is something if, if a sufferer hasn't already started thinking about, that is really the first thing that they can do because the problem is when you get so far down the track, when you're so reliant on insulin is that you, you run this risk of just thinking about how much carbohydrate you've eaten because that then determines how much insulin you need. And therefore, I think there's this risk of not a lot of thought being put into the actual quality of the food that you're eating because as a type 1 diabetic, you'd just be concerned really a lot about how much carbohydrate you're consuming because that determines how much insulin you have. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that as, as somebody with this condition, you perhaps become less conscious of the other illnesses that may come about as a result of not, not just eating real food. So like we would say to anyone in clinic, the first step is to just eat real food. But in particular, with people with type 1 diabetes, it's so, so important. Yeah, there's so much to unpack here. So let's start with the GERF conversation because I do want to be very clear in any of this um, conversation today. Like we're we're not asking you to make changes straight away and obviously we're hope we're hoping that you have lots of light bulb moments and that you learn a lot but obviously it needs to be very tightly controlled so 
it's highly likely that if your type 1 has been managed in that conventional medical model that you will be following a standard Western diet and you will have been prescribed carbohydrates with every meal and obviously insulin to, to manage the blood sugar. Now, immediately... JERF is always going to be lower carbohydrate than the standard Western diet. Now, this is an excellent thing, but what it will mean is that is as soon as you change to a JERF template, your insulin will need to change as well because, as you said, they're directly correlated. The volume of carbs you're consuming in a standard Western diet is very high, therefore your insulin requirements are very high. Mm. The volume of carbohydrates in a JERF template is naturally lower, so your insulin will need to be lowered, and that's pretty much immediate. Now, obviously there's insulin pumps that manage that more closely automatically depending on sort of which technology you use um, but the key point here is that very close monitoring needs to happen initially which will obviously be identified by that blood sugar reading um, that I know you're taking multiple times a day if not again being managed automatically um, but for clarity it's so so important because if you're having too much insulin that is where the damage is. And that's obviously yeah. very, it's life-threatening and it's something we need to avoid completely. Oh, it's so scary. It's so scary looking at the number of people that have one type one di- have type 1 diabetes and are, and are actually not surviving, not because of the condition itself, but because of hypoglycemia. Mm. Uh, as a result of having too much insulin. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the large amounts of carbohydrates that are being consumed means the insulin's really high, but then if the blood sugars are lowered too much, that's where we get that hypoglycemia, which we know is the direct cause of death for about 6 to 10% of type 1 diabetics. Massive. So I want to make that point really clear that JERF is always lower carb, so that comes with a very close monitoring of the insulin dosage. And, you know, I've got one client that comes to mind that's across this and she's an absolute legend with managing her insulin units and she can historically tell you her units from, you know, day one to starting LCHF or starting JERF and the nuances that she sees with other foods that we'll talk about today. And, you know, I feel really comfortable with her managing that quite closely, but we have to remember that the greatest number of type one diabetics are children and, Therefore, there's, you know, that education that we have to have to bridge the gap with both the, you know, the child, obviously, and the family or the parents that are helping them um, because there's, you know, a huge education process that happens in that initial phase while we're rebalancing the blood sugars and obviously the insulin dosage. Definitely, because obviously the application of GERF will have an impact on insulin dosage and you can't afford or anybody managing somebody with type 1 diabetes can't afford to just mosey on and and keep taking the same amount of insulin. Yeah, and I will just say it's really important that you seek professional guidance. So that's why we obviously encourage you developing a team. So please don't try and make too many changes on your own. Seek professional guidance. 
um, before embarking on significant dietary change. Um, and obviously, you know, we're here to help you if you need. Um, but it's a really great conversation to start to have with your current team because I think these days it's actually the clients that are often educating the practitioners, which Definitely. is amazing. You know, we've got practitioners, we've got clients going to their doctors, you know, um, speaking about the overprescription of antidepressants or pharmaceuticals. Um, and I think it's really starting the change in that broken medical model that we have. So definitely have that conversation because you want your team to be on the same health page. You absolutely want your diabetes educator to be across the benefits of lowering your carbohydrate intake and to be able to help you manage that. Yeah, for sure. Mm. So the benefits of LCHF for somebody with type 1 diabetes, mm. I want to talk on that because we know that for somebody with type 2 diabetes where they're producing too much insulin, it's usually because they're eating too much sugar or they've been eating too much sugar for a sustained period of time. Uh, the body becomes less sense, or the body becomes desensitized. Thank you for finding my words for me. Desensitized, so more insulin is required to help achieve stable blood sugar. So with a type 2 diabetic, we reduce the amount of carbohydrates being consumed, which therefore means there's not as much of an increase in blood glucose levels, therefore not as much insulin required, or they start to become more sensitive. So what is it when it comes to a type 1 diabetic that the lowered carbohydrate will assist with? Is it similar or are we looking at something different? There's definitely similarities, but I want to be clear, they are actually opposite conditions. Again, as we touched on at the start, obviously type 2 is too much insulin, which is largely coming from, you know, obviously dietary um, decisions, whereas type 1 is a disease of too little insulin. So, you know, if you look at it from the outset, it, it doesn't make as much logical sense, right? You think too little insulin, you know, why would I lower the carbohydrates further? But the real message is that the answer is actually in the blood sugar stabilization. You know, poorly managed type 1 is that constant blood sugar roller coaster, which is managed by more and more pharmaceuticals which as you know is important to point out it's the insulin that causes all of the problems you know obviously it's a genetic condition but the the main problem we see with the progression of the disease is because of the significant amounts of insulin that are required and poorly managed requires more insulin yeah. and more insulin causes the damage which we see in the neuropathy and the, the damages to the eyesight and basically the degeneration of the individual which is tragic to see in especially people that have had it for, you know, their whole lives. Um, so going back to your point, you know, the blood sugar stabilisation is, is key. We know LCHF stands for lower carbohydrate, higher fat, and this is a relative comparison to a standard Western diet. So simply the addition of these healthy fats balances out the blood sugar so, of course, you know, there are going to be whole food carbohydrates. This is not ketosis. This is not 25 grams a day, like we know can reverse type 2. But the small amounts of whole food carbohydrates control the major blood sugar swings that we would otherwise see. And then 
the dietary fats reduce any of the spikes that are currently happening because of the standard Western diet. So it really creates balance. So the dietary changes are huge to basically level out that poorly managed type 1 diabetes. Yeah, great. I'm really glad that you've you've talked on that and really helped us, the audience, um, to understand the benefits of LCHF for somebody mm. in that type 1 diabetes. And I do want to clarify that, you know, I'm sure I sound like a broken record to people that hear me speak about this all the time, but I'm really conscious of continuing to educate the space that GERF and LCHF can be identical. You know, it's very easy for LCHF to be wrapped up in a ketosis bubble where people think it's like Atkins with these slabs of meat on the plate and, you know, that link to sort of heart disease in our old school medical model, whereas we like to teach that GERF, Just Eat Real Food, is is identical or it can be identical to LCHF, but it needs to be individualised. Like it's not a one-size-fits-all. Absolutely. It's got to be applied to the individual taking into account their situation and that's one of the reasons why this is a little bit of a side conversation, but I do get quite frustrated with people that come into the clinic and it's absolutely not their it's not a, through a fault of their own, but people read about the benefits of keto and they think that because we're specialists in, a, specialists in LCHF, then instantly we'll want them to, to get into ketosis. Or, or cut out all carbs. Cut out all carbohydrates. Mm. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time talking to my clients about the difference between LCHF and keto and the fact that vegetables aren't bad. Yeah, and I think absolutely there's a time and a place, which is another big conversation to have. Like ultimately real food is the answer and and foods like sweet potato and bananas are carbohydrates. And, you know, again, individualised, people thrive on variations of a real food template and that's again why it's important to have a guide like you don't need to be navigating dr google and facebook and instagram and getting advice from 14 different people i think that's where we either get massively confused or an analysis paralysis where we then find it all too overwhelming but the point really here is that you know, the the answer is real food. And we need to remember that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition. So let's have a conversation around why real food is important and, and what else we need to do. Definitely. And that's what I wanted to come back to. You pretty much read my mind was we got onto the subject of autoimmunity before, but didn't really come on to what are, the, what are some things that we can do with our diets to support autoimmune conditions. And we know that you know, we look at the foundation and that is absolutely jerf. So we start there, mm. but then we move up, up um, from that foundation to look at things like food, certain food triggers that may be influencing somebody's condition um, or whether it's lack of gut health, whether there's some intestinal permeability there, which may be exacerbating the, the condition and situation. So what's next? Is it, yeah. is it looking at gut health? Is it looking at intolerances or the two go hand in hand? Yeah, I mean, let's define this just from a GERF standpoint to, to set that foundation of the house, so to speak. Um, 
you know, for me, Jerf means you are gluten-free, but I just want to clarify that's the number one goal because we know that gluten is a huge trigger for that autoimmune situation where the body attacks itself. Now, there are numbers of autoimmune conditions, but in this instance, we're talking about um, type 1 where the organ that is attacked is the pancreas. But another example would be in a Hashimoto's where the organ that's attacked is the thyroid. Now, there's pretty clear-cut research on removing gluten, but next in line is actually dairy. And I don't define jerf as being dairy-free because there are plenty of people that thrive in including quality dairy, Mm. but in an autoimmune situation, it's definitely something that needs to be explored. Now, again, this is not black and white. Like we try to teach people to live in the gray. And this is my new kind of thing I'm working on with my clients at the moment to try to avoid extremism, unless of course it's needed, but you know, it's something to definitely try. And in clinic, we break things down into 30-day blocks and that could be purely for someone to kind of fathom the idea of even trying it but if you've got an autoimmune disease that's a life sentence and someone said to you why don't you try dairy free for a month like it's a pretty small task to see if it has you know quite a significant benefit on managing your condition for sure for sure one of the pushbacks that I think often is out there though is that people think well I don't have any um, IBS symptoms I don't have any gastrointestinal upset when I eat things like gluten or dairy so therefore why would I not eat those foods yeah how do you begin that conversation with your clients I mean I know where I go but I'm interested to know how you begin that conversation because it's not just about whether you have IBS symptoms as a Mm. result of eating those foods and I think autoimmune conditions are the perfect example of that Yeah, I have a few key thoughts here. I mean, the first one when it comes to things like gluten, dairy, is that we know if you were to remove them from someone's plate, you would never suffer from a nutritional deficiency, right? No. They actually create space for more whole foods, which increases your nutrients, which obviously moves you towards optimizing your health. So that's usually a light bulb for a lot of people because, you know, we're in this world where the grain industry is, you know, pretty much fighting hard for us to still be addicted to things like bread and pasta and processed grains. And then we've got the influence of the dairy industry where a lot of people still think that's the only place they can get calcium. So we're almost obsessed with these foods. I mean, there's obviously the addictive component to things like gluten, which triggers a similar reaction that opioids do in the brain. So that can't be ignored. But I think that calcium conversation is an important part of this. Um, go on. Oh, for sure. I mean, look, Steph, I had somebody come into clinic the other day who has identified themselves as being lactose intolerant, but the previous dietitian they saw said, well, you were going to wind up being calcium deficient. So I'm going to prescribe you yogurt once a day, even though this person has identified as being lactose intolerant. Wow. So that right there is an indication as to, as to, how much little knowledge there is around even something as simple as where we can get calcium from in the, in the absence of dairy. Of course, absolutely. Like my favorites are obviously bone broth, but that can be the deep end for some people, Mm. even just including the bones in, in the fish that you're eating, almonds, celery, oranges, sesame seeds, tahini, obviously. So, so many options. Yes. (laughs) Obsession. Um, But going back to your question, you know, so we start there obviously with working out, 
what um, the trigger foods are. But I think absolutely next in line is gut health because the situation to think about when it comes to anything autoimmune is what it's doing is creating the inflammatory cascade. So these trigger foods are causing gaps in the tight junction, which are the holes in the small intestine that, you know, the analogy that might help you from a visual standpoint is a bucket. So your small intestine should be a bucket, but if it has holes in it, then we create the this inflammatory cascade where nutrients are getting out. So we see nutrient deficiencies or even like, you know, conditions like anemia, mm. um, but also pathogens can get in. So the inflammatory cycle, it becomes literally this vicious cycle that goes around and around in circles. So the first step is obviously pulling out the trigger food. So you're not perpetuating that vicious cycle, but then it's about going in and healing and sealing those holes. So essentially reversing that leaky gut, those holes in the bucket are sealed up. Yeah. And the analogy I use with my clients is this analogy of a fly screen. Mm. So this idea that um, our gut lining, its role is to allow small small particles to go mm. through, just like a fly screen. A fly screen's role is to allow air to go through but not to allow bigger things to pass through like flies. Mm. When our gut, when we start to get holes or when those those tight junctions start to get looser, mm. then larger particles can actually make their way through from the small intestine into our bloodstream and it's that that causes the immune response. Yeah, right? for sure. I love that analogy. I'm going to borrow that one. <laughs> um, but, yeah, obviously gut health we've spoken about a lot on the show and I can definitely put some links in the show notes Um as to some further direction there. What I will say, though, it's, that's important to be really personalised. So we encourage you to work with a practitioner to develop a gut health protocol that's really appropriate to you. Um, but it absolutely has to sit alongside the management of any autoimmune condition. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm. Now, we haven't talked a lot today about the role that exercise plays. Obviously, Lower carbohydrate, higher fat was something that we wanted to focus predominantly on today, but we can't forget the fact that you and I do work a lot with athletes and that exercise is something that we do talk with our clients a lot about. So what about for somebody with type 1 diabetes who hasn't got that ideal team of people around them, so perhaps hasn't been educated on the benefits of being physically active or including physical activity into their into their management. Mm. Where does exercise come into play? Yeah, well, it's really important for blood sugar control, yeah. and I think that's the key. Again, we're coming back to what the overarching aim is when we talk about type 1. Um, and, you know, obviously the amount of carbohydrates you need can be directly related to the type of exercise that you're doing. So a little bit of high-intensity exercise is really, really important, um, but also it can create a little bit more space for you to be able to tolerate carbohydrates mm. better, which is important because we want this to be a sustainable management plan. Again, while we don't think ketosis is the answer um, in, this per- in this situation, um, obviously it can work for type 2, but in type 1, I think, you know, for children we want to obviously give them something that they can use long-term and 
a template that allows a bit of room from a carbohydrate budget per se, I think is really sustainable. Did you want to add something there about exercise? Well, the point is that when it comes to exercise, we don't need as much in, much insulin mm. to help with the clearance of glucose from the bloodstream. So for somebody with type 1 diabetes, they can actually help that natural uptake of glucose from the bloodstream with exercise, particularly resistance exercise. Mm. And if they haven't exercised before, then they need to be conscious of the impact that that it will have on blood glucose uptake and therefore how much insulin is required at that end of the day or or in the, in the meal after that, that bout of physical activity. Yeah, and you've made me think of something else which is quite interesting, but I'll just talk on that for a second. Again, great point because this is obviously a, going to be a change to someone's schedule which is going to change their, their insulin dosage. Mm-hmm. So, again, very important to monitor very closely. But we also see it in situations of stress. And so a stress could be a food trigger, like an autoimmune food. And there are a few others we'll get to. So let's circle back around to that shortly. But I see it in um, some of my clients when they, I mean, they see it when they stressed, they see that their blood sugar is absolutely out of control. So, you know, if the conversation is only around carbohydrates, that person cannot find a reason why their blood sugars are high and it's really easy to assume this isn't working and there can be frustration and lack of adherence and a whole, you know, cascade of problems. So important, yeah, absolutely, exercise and then, of course, stress. Like if you're seeing your blood sugars rise in a stressful situation, your body's talking loud and clear that you need to obviously have some strategies that will be great feedback when you see your sugars level out. So it's actually great to be able to manage. Definitely. Super interesting. And, look, we can't all remove the stresses in our life. Mm. We can't all take away being an adult. <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah, life. <laughs> um, but what we can do is teach our bodies how to respond to these stressful mm. situations or the day-to-day stresses of life. So that's where something like a meditation or a yoga can become a really important part of your disease management protocol. Mm, Yeah, I agree. And I also think that we need to speak beyond those two because, you know, I love yoga. I'm an absolute junkie. But but a lot of people literally look at you like you're a crazy person when you talk about the M word, meditation, or the Y word, yoga. So, you know, what I've tried to do, you know, in my own personal health journey is look at what feels like meditation to me. It doesn't need to be the robes and the beads and the candles and the pillow that you sit on with your cross legs. Like for me, my idea of meditation is bare feet in the sand, walking, you know, with just maybe some music or a podcast. And I think it's really important for us to challenge our listeners what feels like meditation to them because you you can easily drop that 10 minutes of meditation off your self-care list when you get busy. But if you find something that you need daily to like to light you up or to calm you down or to make you feel inspired, I think you can really find a way to make it happen daily. And adherence, again, is the number one goal, giving you something that you think is, you know, painful, which means that there's super low adherence. Adherence is to me not a great protocol. It's not a great strategy. No, definitely. I like what you said about not having to think that it's just the yoga 
or mm. just the meditation that's going to help. Um, I was speaking with somebody the other day who's just started to learn how to sail and said that for three hours, for the first time they in their life really, they have not thought about anything mm. but the sailing that they were doing at that point in time. Now we've got to think about what that's going to be doing for their stress levels, for their cortisol levels, uh, and that's the ultimate goal of something like a yoga or a meditation, right? So yeah. to go and find that something that puts you into that state of flow or helps you just to be really present um, to help with managing your stress. Yeah, I think that's hormones. amazing. I love that. I love that. And I think it's about redefining what is stress management for, for you. Like I'm putting it out there to you guys listening today because if you don't feel like meditation and yoga is the answer, pardon my French, but stop pushing shit uphill. Like mm-hmm. literally find something that does the same. It's about, you know, what it does to your nervous system. And you know when you're wired, you know when you, you're sympathetic dominant um, and you know when you feel calm and like your client mentioned, the, the absolute ability to switch off from the world around you or to not get caught in that monkey mind of your to-do list or what conversation you had with what friend or whatever it might be that's running through your mind. I think that's amazing, so powerful. Yeah. So can we talk about the autoimmune foods? I really want to cover off a few more. I wanted to come right back to that. So there are some common triggers. We've Mm. talked about gluten. We've talked about dairy. What about things like eggs, nuts, nightshades? Let's go there. Do you see that there is a pattern or should we be looking to one of those over and above Mm. another? Yeah. I love this area. And I think what I will say first is let's remember that the absolute first goal is jerk. And that may be all you need. That may completely help you manage your condition. I think gut health has to be in there because it's important for longevity as well. But there are some people who find it that GERF and gut health is not enough. Mm. So this is an evolution in the treatment of an individual condition. But we know that the common autoimmune triggers are eggs, nuts, seeds, and nightshade vegetables in addition to our gluten and dairy. So obviously let's break those down. Eggs, um, you know, pretty obvious, but it's important to remember there's a big difference between free-range pasture-raised eggs and grain-fed eggs. So if you were going to put someone on an autoimmune protocol, would you actually remove eggs altogether straight away or would you start by removing um, grain-fed? I mean, I would definitely start by making sure they were buying quality proteins Mm. because this is an important purchasing decision for lots of environmental and ethical and health reasons. So, yeah, but really good point because some people, like let's say the the really um, vogue food intolerance prick testing and they come up with an egg allergy and this Mm. person thinks it's a life sentence to never eating eggs but no one's spoken to them about the fact that the chickens were being fed grains Mm. so they're actually reacting to the gluten particles or whatever it is in, in, in the end product um digressing a little bit but i think you know what i will say is that i don't actually have a black and white protocol for managing an autoimmune protocol but essentially i think what's really important is to um 
look at identifying what the triggers are. Like do not assume that you have to cut them all out and and don't even start with them all. So let's use an example. If it's someone that's been doing LCHF for a while and what they're doing is drinking almond latte, snacking on almonds and having paleo bread every day with almonds. Not to mention the almond butter. (laughs) Yeah, out of the jar, right? Yeah. Um, So that, that is, you know, for me in that instance, it's obvious that they're simply at the ceiling. And what I mean by that is that we've all got these relative tolerances of every food and if we overdo it, we're climbing the stairs towards the ceiling, we hit the ceiling and our body is reacting. This is outside of an autoimmune condition. So everyone can think about this from their own personal experience. Um, But I would challenge that client to doing 30 days almond free. But, you know, on the other hand, if it was someone that was eating eggs every day, then I would pick eggs for them. I think do it step by step because if you make too many changes, it will be too grey and you won't be able to identify the actual trigger. And we also have to remember that these people need to sustain themselves and food is part of life and it's something that we enjoy. And if we remove all of those triggers at once, then it becomes pretty hard. I've done it myself for, for three and a half weeks and it becomes really hard. Oh, yeah. And it's, I don't think it's the answer because it's stressful and it leads to lack of variety. Whereas ultimately, even if we look at, well, not even, but especially if we look at microbiome diversity, the actual answer is in food diversity first so restrictive protocols and again this applies to everyone um, even if it's like a FODMAP example Mm. like a low FODMAP diet restrictive protocols have lots of problems um, attached to them so yeah going back to our point for today's conversation I talked to the individual about what their main food is out of the eggs nuts seeds and nightshades and educate them that there might be a bit of a step-by-step process to identify if they are reacting to those foods. Um, but I wanted to talk about why, because the real sort of, I guess, point here is that these foods are potentially not only triggering your autoimmune condition, but creating inflammation, yeah. which perpetuates, perpetuates your autoimmune immune condition. But we know that inflammation is the cause of many, if not all, chronic disease. So we need to be managing inflammation for all of our health goals for today and into the future. Exactly. I said before that we Mm. don't want type 1 diabetics to fall into this trap of just managing that one condition at the expense of all other conditions. And this is is the point you're making is that we have to think about overall inflammation and the the impact it has on our risks for other lifestyle-related diseases or Mm. chronic illness and diseases. Yeah, so true. And then obviously why gut health is important for all of us outside of a diagnosis because that's the key way we control inflammation next to GERF, clearly. Mm. (laughs) I think we've made that point clear, Mm. Um, which is going to manage things like your triglycerides, your C-reactive protein, your homocysteine and these inflammatory markers that we measure in the clinic here because you're obviously moving away from disease and that that's the key like you know we want to live these long lives but not at the expense of quality you know the quality of life is key and the power is in your hands about the decisions that you make what goes on your plate and I think how much you educate yourself like full circle to not just accepting a pharmaceutical route 
and a disease that just becomes harder to manage with age, let's take the power back and educate ourselves on what we can do. For sure. I mean, we, you, said, you just said we all want to live a long life, but let's aim to live a long life that doesn't require us to be propped up on medications mm. and pharmaceuticals. And also let's build a team of people around us who aren't looking to treat us once we get to that point of needing medication or pharmaceuticals, right? Like so many doctors will just completely overlook low B12 levels, high risk, high fasting blood glucose levels, thyroid antibodies, antibodies (laughs) because their patient doesn't require medication at that point. They haven't got a medication that can help the client. Same goes for the actual testing that they do. How many GPs are testing for CRP regularly? Because mm. there's not one medication that they can give that, that patient or that client as a result of just some elevated CRP. Mm. But that's why I love the people that take the responsibility themselves to come and work with people like us to actually dig a little bit deeper and understand what their risk for disease is like, not just whether or not they have a disease. Mm. Yeah, so true. I think we could have another podcast on this exact topic. We could, we could. (laughs) Um, Look, I've actually covered most of the questions that I had for you today. Mm. As always, such a wealth of knowledge and so good to talk to you. Uh, was there anything that you felt we haven't talked on that our audience should hear about on this topic? Um, look, I've, I've loved this chat. I think it's so, so important and a conversation I want to continue to have. Um, I just thought I'd give um, our listeners a resource to head to. Um, you know, I think... Some of this information comes across as like new, like it's revolutionary, but this knowledge has actually been around for decades. I think, unfortunately, it's been squashed by Big Pharma. I know I am a bit of a sceptic in that (laughs) realm, but there's a really fascinating doctor by the name of Dr. Richard Bernstein, and and he... um, he was diagnosed back in 1946, mm-hmm. so he was 12 at the time. He's now thriving at 83. Like 83 is bloody old for a type 1 diabetic in our conventional sense where their mortality is always higher because of the complications of the insulin that we spoke about earlier. But Dr. Bernstein has an amazing book that's available um, at diabetes-book.com, which I'll pop in the show notes, I just want people to appreciate that, you know, we are not actually speaking about science that is, um, as I said, new, although it might sound completely crazy to some people who have only been taught that conventional model. There's lots of research going back for decades. I think it's just really important that, you know, we change the medical model so people have access to this information that, again, is not new. Mm. So head to the show notes for um, a few more resources that I'll put together for you guys. Um, But really I just wanted to make us available for any questions that you may have. Um, So we can be reached, obviously, through the naturalnutritionist.com.au. So definitely shoot us an email through the contact form on our website if you need a little bit of help or personal direction. 
Um, but I just wanted to close really with my point about not making any significantly drastic changes because type 1 diabetes is obviously um, a genetic condition that is lifelong um, and it does need to be managed closely. So please, please, please take it easy, absorb the knowledge and take your time understanding your own body because it's very individual, especially if you are already exercising um, and managing your carbohydrates, it's important that you do so very carefully. So take your time and develop your team of professionals. Um, but yeah, the power's in your hands. So it must be so exciting to know if it's the first time that you're hearing this, that there is so much in your control. And I hope that you've learned so much from our chat today. Definitely. Thank you, Steph. It's been my pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for being on the show, Ellie. And thanks for listening, guys. We'll chat soon. Bye-bye. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.